All right, this morning, I know there's lots of things that we have been working on and need to continue to work on, but I, today, I'm, today I'm going to begin a, a new series, and this is one of those situations, whenever you start a new series, the, the, you know, your first words are important because hopefully it sets the tone for the rest of the series. And this is a situation where I don't think this will be an overstatement. This may be one of the most important series we've ever done in the history of the church. And that's, that's saying a lot because we've covered a lot of very, very important subjects. But this may be the most important one because I think this one is the most misunderstood possibly in the evangelical Christian world today. So we're going to really, really, really try to understand this. Probably, I'm guessing... No one has probably ever heard a series on this subject. So um, that hopefully will make it at least interesting to you. It is going to be a lot of work and uh, there'll be stuff I'll do here, stuff I'll do on the podcast to add to it because I want to make sure by the time we're done, everyone understands this topic better than you ever understood it in, you know, ever. And you may not even have even an understanding of it at this moment. And if you don't, that's perfectly okay. So let's start this way. If you were to name some of the most important doctrines in the evangelical world, in the Christian world, in the history of Christianity, what would be some of the, like, name, like, let's try to create a list of the five most important doctrines that everyone needs to understand. Let's go through them. What do you think? Number one. Okay, soteriology. That's basically the study of salvation. All right, I think that, that that would include a lot of things. That's a good way of just summarizing a number of things into one word. What, what things would be included in soteriology? Depravity of man, very good. And that's a very important doctrine. What else would be involved in soteriology? There's obviously more than the depravity of man within soteriology. Okay. Regeneration, okay. Election, very good. What else? Hopefully everybody remembers the one that starts with a J. <laughs> justification. Okay, set that aside. Place that uh, 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 as its own thing. Justification. Okay, good. I mean, soteriology without justification would be a really bad soteriology, all right? Justification, all right? So name some other key doctrines. Some other key ones. Okay, good. I was getting ready to say one starts with a T. Okay, Trinity would be very important since there's so much misteaching and misunderstanding of it. All right, some others. Deity of Christ. That would be a very important one. Okay, another one. Maybe starts with an I. Oh, imputation. Okay, I was thinking another one with an I, but the doctrine of imputation, that would go with uh, soteriology, but definitely an important one. Okay, now another one that starts with an I. How many are holding a Bible in their hands? Inspiration of Scripture. Okay, that would be, that would probably be really good. Okay, all right. What are some other key doctrines? Okay, the impeccability of Christ. I I mean, I think that's an important one. Everybody know what that means? Okay, all right. Any others? Come on. There's so many, right? I, let's put it this way. We can put, uh, there are a lot, yes? And whenever, and whenever a pastor preaches one of those doctrines, what do they typically say about that doctrine? 
This is the most important doctrine, right? Because you always want your sermon, everyone to think that what you're preaching at that moment is the most important. Okay, I try not to do that because, because at some point it just sounds like you're trying to sell a used car, right? So, hey, this series is going to be the most important series. Hey, but uh, so at some point I try not to do that. But in this particular case, I'm not going to say what we're going to cover is the most important doctrine. What I'm going to say is that it may be one of the most important to understand simply due, not because I'm teaching it, but due to the fact that I think you probably have, I don't think if I went for another hour, anybody in this church would list it. All right? So there are two key doctrines. All right? Now, Luther would have said that the church stands and falls on what doctrine? Justification. Justification. Luther would have said the church stands and falls on the doctrine of justification. Obviously, Luther would have said that because he was drawing a distinction between what? Yeah, the, the idea of an uh, imputed righteousness versus... How is a man justified before a holy God? By an infused righteousness or by an imputed righteousness? So he would have obviously said, that's the doctrine the church is going to stand or fall on. But many, who would have at that time, or at least not soon after that time, would have said something else. The essential doctrine would be justification, and the second essential doctrine would be how law and gospel is divided. How law and gospel is divided. Or we could state it this way, what is the proper distinction between law and gospel? Now, I will argue that most Christians, first of all, probably have not given this much thought. Secondly, I think if I was to ask you, what is the proper distinction between law and gospel, and handed you a blank sheet of paper and said, write a paragraph to to give me your answer, how many, when when the time was up, your paper would still be blank? What do you think? Okay, Sarah says probably. That's bad coming from our Pope. Okay, that's... That's not good, okay? No. Hopefully you would be able to come up with something. But let me make it clear that if we took 20 Christians from 20 different churches and said, what is the proper distinction between law and gospel, do you think we're going to come up with anything close to resembling agreement? Okay, the answer is always no, because if you took 20 Christians from 20 churches and asked them any question, you would get disagreement. All right, so the answer is always no, but this one would be really, really bad because these are very important concepts. How do we understand the distinction between law and gospel? And you know what makes this so difficult? Listen to this quote. You may agree with this or you may not agree with this, but I think it's very important. All right. And the book called God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, very, very important book. Here is this quote. Comparing Holy Scripture with other writings, we observe that no book, no other book, is apparently so full of contradictions as the Bible itself, and that not only in minor points, but in principal matters. 
Now, this is not a book opposed to Christianity. This is not a book a criticizing Christianity. This is a book wanting to draw the distinction between law and gospel. And what do they start with? Comparing Holy Scripture with other writings, we observe that no book is apparently so full of contradictions as the Bible, and that not, and that not only in minor points, but in the principal matter. Now, some people don't like to hear that. They get very upset. Like, no, 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 no. There is no contradiction. Now, I understand we don't like the word contradiction, do we? But we have to acknowledge there's got to be something when it comes to the Bible that creates major problems, right? Because there's always so much disagreement. And one of the areas where there is so much disagreement is this concept, and even though if people don't understand the term, is how do we understand the distinction between law and gospel? So we're going to spend, I don't know how long, trying to figure out how to bring these two together so that we can understand. They are distinct, but how do we understand them properly? What is the correct way to understand them? So this morning, let's at least begin with a very basic thing to do, right? I got different ways I wanted to start this, but I think this is a great place to start it. If you have a piece of paper, just draw down a, a, a line right down the middle of the page. On one side, write the word law. On the other side, write the word gospel. Let's at least make sure we understand the terms, right? Because I could spend six weeks going, hey, let's get a proper understanding of law and gospel, but no one really has a good working definition of either. Does that make sense? So let's just do this just for fun. Grab a Bible dictionary. Just do this for fun. I already have definitions written down, so I was going to just give you definitions, but you know I don't like doing that. Look up the word law and just see what you find. Is there an, is there an entry for the word law? There's a long one. Look at that. How many pages long? How many pages? Okay, I got, I got, someone said four, Stacy said more, okay, okay. That's a lot of pages, isn't it? Now what I want you to do, right at the, just skim the, like the first paragraph. Do they give you like a succinct definition? Okay, what is the like succinct definition they, they give us for the word law? Okay, a, a system of rules and regulations in which a society is governed. That's the very generic understanding of law, right? Everyone understands that in every society there will be law. Right? There will be law. Even, even for people who are like, no, I want anarchy and I don't like law. No law. Guess what always happens? As soon as they find power, they will do what? Establish law, right? They will stop. My stepbrother used to walk around with anarchy signs and anarchy, anarchy, anarchy. So one day I walked into his room and he had some money and I took the money and then he started yelling, that's not fair. And I'm like, I thought you believed in anarchy. <laughs> anarchy until something of his. So we all know, we all understand that concept, right? Laws. But so we could say this, let's do this. That's a generic term for our theological purpose. Just understand law is rules and regulations. And what goes with rules and regulations? What, co- what goes along with rules and regulations? 
consequences. You follow the rules and regulations. If you do not, what happens? Bad things. And if you follow them, then typically good things, or at least the, the, uh, you, you miss out on the bad. Right? Does, the, does the dictionary offer any more, like anything more theological about law as you look through that definition? Oh, a unique law code by God given to his people. Everybody see that? Does it say anything else about that code? Okay, so God gave a law to his people, right? And it was to govern what three areas? Worship to him. Their relationship to him. And their relationships to each other. So God gave a law for his people that governs worship, relationship with him, and relationship with each other. Or how could we say this? In some ways, all aspects of their lives. Agreed? All right. Let's, let's, we, you, can, you can, if you want to skim that a little bit more, you can. I'll borrow from a different dictionary. The law is a term used to reference typically, in a very narrow way, the Ten Commandments. All right. Found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 17. More broadly, sometimes it's referred to as the first five books of the Old Testament, or the Pentateuch, also the Torah. Especially, it also refers to the material found in chapters 20 through 40 of the book of Exodus, where you have all kinds of laws, right, including the Ten Commandments. The whole book of Leviticus, and chapters 5 through 30 of the book of Deuteronomy. But simply put, what would be, for our purpose, what would be a good way of just understanding God's law? What would be a a good way of understanding law in reference to God? These are God's rules, regulation, and standard which he has revealed to us. Correct? And how how has that standard been revealed? How has God's law been revealed to us? Okay. Scripture. I mean, first we could just start with the Ten Commandments, right? On tablets, right? Yes. Scripture. Is there any other way his law has been revealed to us? We have scripture. We have the tablets. What's another way? This one we're going to come back to at some point. Someone said it. God's law has been written on our hearts. What would be proof that God's law has been written on our hearts? What What would you argue as a proof that God's law has been written on our hearts? What would be your proof to prove that to someone? Well, it's not that we, well, we, we have a sense of right and wrong. Does that, I would say it that way. Because of our depravity, our understanding of right and wrong is all messed up. But we have a sense of it, right? In other words, no matter where you go, you can find an atheist, you can find an agnostic, you can find someone who hates God, who hates Christianity. Listen to them talk, because at some point they're going to say, that's right, that's wrong, that's not fair, that's unjust, 
that's bigoted, that's prejudiced, that's not, and they're going to say, no matter, yeah, and sometimes it's kids raised in a Christian home who don't ever seem to care about rules, they leave Christianity, and all of a sudden they become evangelists for their idea of right and wrong, and it's like, when, when did you, but why? Because inside of them, guess what's there? There's a law. That doesn't mean it reflects God's law perfectly, just means there's a sense of right and wrong. No matter where you go, no matter if you find the remotest part of earth and find some tribe that's never had connection with civilization, guess what they will have? Some system of morality, right and wrong. How, it's pretty early when you hear a kid say, that's not fair. Where did that, there's a sense that there's a right. Where does that come from? If we, if, we look at, if we look at the origin of man from a very materialistic evolutionary point, you know, there was an explosion, there were chemicals, all the chemicals end up, you know, mixing together in an ocean, and all of a sudden we crawl out one day, right? And the next thing you know, we evolve, we evolve, we evolve, next thing you know, we're swinging in trees, next thing you know, here we are. Well, where would morality come from? Now, typically, it is seen that morality is an evolutionary concept that we evolved morality for our own benefit and for our own good, but that doesn't make any sense, right? Because if we evolve morality for our own benefit and our own good, then at some point everything should be good in our life, right? But why do people continue to violate even the morality we set up? True? So morality is, is a sign that God's law has been revealed to us. So as simply put, what would we say that, that, that the law of God is? God's rules, regulation, standards. And what's, what's a, what, what does the law of God say? Do this and live. Do this and live. It's a, it's a call for you to do something, to obey something. Everybody understand that? All right. Now, look up the word gospel in the dictionary. Let's look up the word gospel. See, if we get a simple definition... A simple definition. It's probably not near as long, is it? Okay. The reason the word law is so long is because it deals with all the different concepts of law. Okay. Does that make sense? All right. What is, what is the simple definition for gospel according to the dictionary? Okay, good. Okay, awesome. It's the joyous news, the good news of salvation. Right? The gospel is good news. Good news of what? Someone said salvation. The good news of, well, let's say it this way. God, the gospel is good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, Ascension. You have to kind of include all of that. 
The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for us in his what? Incarnation. Life. Everyone skips the life part. I don't know why. We cannot skip the life part. That's very important, especially when you understand law and gospel. All right? His death. Everyone focuses on that. His burial. His resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, which is also very important when we understand the distinction between law and gospel. The law says, do this and live. What does the gospel say? Christ did this. Christ did this for you. The law demands you do it. The gospel declares Christ has done it for you. Those are major distinctions, yes? Major distinctions. And we need to properly understand these distinctions. We, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, this kind of give you a, kind of a scriptural basis for the gospel. I, I made some references to the law, all the different parts of the Bible that contains law. First Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. I'm just going to read it in the translation I have here in my notes. All right, everybody there? First Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. How does it begin? Moreover, or some translations say now, and it says brothers, correct? Or brethren, which some translations modern will say brothers and sisters because it's obviously referring to both. I, I, and this translation says, I want to remind you of the... How does the other translations read? The gospel. The gospel. I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this, verse 2. Okay, by this what? Say it. By which you're saved, referring to what? What's the by which you're saved? The gospel is how you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed unto you as of first importance, that Christ did what? Died for our sins, according to the scriptures, buried, rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's a basic idea of the gospel, what Christ did for us. However, it, it must include the incarnation, his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. All of that really needs to be a part of it. Because when Christ was living, his actions while he was living is a part of the gospel. He was living and doing something for you. He was doing something for you. That's very, very important to understand. And we'll we'll talk about that in greater detail. Right? So everyone has a. So simply put, the law is what? God telling you, do this and live. And the gospel is, Christ did this for you. Now you could, you could use the same phrase, the, the, kind of the same phrase, phrase here. Do this and live. And the gospel is, Christ did this so you can live. The living is a part of both. One, under law, you live under what? Threat, fear, and if you're honest, condemnation. 
The gospel, you should live with what? Hope, peace, certainty, fear is gone. There should be a, a, a relief there. But you're going to live either, uh, you're living your life under one of these. Does that, does, does that make sense for everyone? Now, there is a major problem here when it comes to the Bible. Let's just look at some scriptures. Go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know this, you can, but look it up anyway. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You can probably quote it. I'm going to read it from this translation that I have here in front of me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no man can boast. All right, that seems to emphasize that we are saved by what? Grace through faith, not by works. Everybody would everyone agree that seems pretty clear? Doesn't even seem to, even to be a problem understanding that verse. Now go to James chapter 2. Remember this book on law and gospel? Said the Bible has got more contradictions than like any other book? Well, this creates major problems. James chapter 2. We'll start in verse 14. Again, I'll read it just in the Bible that I'm holding. James 2, 14. Everyone there? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? And the, the answer that's being asked for is what? No, it can't. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without works, and I will show you your faith by my works. You believe that God is good? Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with the works, and by works, faith was made complete. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith only or faith alone. Does that not seem to really contradict Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Now, do you think that there have been attempts to reconcile this throughout the history of Christianity, or at least since the Protestant Reformation? Yes, there have been all kinds of attempts. All kinds of attempts. What, what do the attempts typically look like? What do we typically say? Come on, we all know. What, what is it? What, you've, you've probably said something similar. Huh? This appears to be a contradiction, right? If someone points out the contradiction, what is almost your immediate reaction? The word of God does not contradict itself. So it's not a contradiction, right? So immediately you say there's no contradiction. And then what do you offer up as your way of reconciling or fixing the contradiction? And you tell the person, and if they don't understand, you think there's just something wrong with them. And there's nothing possibly wrong with your explanation, right? So, because it's always someone else's fault if they don't understand. It's never our fault, okay? But that's the way it works, right? 
So what's the explanation? Okay, you're saved, you're saved without works. But the faith that saves you will produce works. So if you don't have works, you're not saved. But you're not saved by works. But if you don't have works, you're not saved. But you're not saved by those works. But you have to have the works. And we walk away going, I explained that so good. And the people listening to you are like, that's the most circular thing I've ever seen in my life. How does that, how do you, how does that work? We think it makes perfect sense because we want it to make perfect sense. But if another religion tried to explain it that way, we would walk away probably mocking them. Because don't you see how utterly, hey, I'm not saved by works, but if you don't have works, you're not saved. And what, would, what should be the obvious question you have to ask? Come on, what's the question you should ask? How much works? How many works? What kind of works? How do I know? Because if I go to Matthew 7, there was a lot of people who did a lot of works, right? They healed people. They cast out demons. They preached. And what did Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. Well, wait a minute. Have any of you raised the dead, cast out demons? Well, you're not saved. If those works are not enough, how many works do you need? And if you ask that question, people are like, oh, what are you saying? Are you saying Christians can just do whatever they want? No, I'm saying that you, if you're going to demand that a certain work saves, who is, who's responsible then to define how many works it is? You have to define it. And do, what did, if there's one thing we learn in the New Testament about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what do we learn about the Pharisees and the Sadducees? All their external righteousness was what? Useless. So that means you could literally have external righteousness, and that still would not be the way. So how do you judge if your works are just external righteousness or actually the right kind of work? So not only do you have to have the right number of works, you have to have the right kind of works, and will you ever know if your works are the right kind or if they're the sufficient amount? And what would be the a, a proper answer? So that, No. So what do they do? They come up with test. The great test. MacArthur has his test. Jonathan Edwards has his test. This is how you know you're saved. And what are some of the tests? What are some of the tests they give us? You love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Has anybody ever pulled that off? So then what do they say? Well, I mean, you're not going to do it perfectly. Well, if I'm not going to do it perfectly, then how do I know I'm doing it enough? You've got to love You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. But you're not going to do it perfectly. You've got to be holy as God is holy. But you're not going to... After every test, they say, but you're not going to do it perfectly. But you're not going to do it perfectly. But you're not going to do it perfectly. Well, so my imperfection somehow can still be sufficient to say, and if the faith is the thing that produces the works, why isn't my faith producing perfect works? And if my faith is producing works, that seems to indicate What? Not an imputed righteousness, but some kind of an infused righteousness, which seems to lead me right back to Roman Catholicism. Well, all of this problem comes down to understanding law and gospel. Because if I look at you and say, you must do this in order to prove you're saved, what did I just give you? Law. 
Does that make sense? So that means you're saved by law. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. Yes, you are. You can play all the semantics you want. You're telling someone, Emma, you must do these things in order to prove you're saved. Well, if you've got to do them to prove you're saved, you have to do them in order to be saved. Because what should Emma ask? If I don't do this, you're telling me I'm not saved? Yeah, well, then I'm not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And then they'll say, well, you're not doing the works. Christ is doing the work through you. And then what should Emma say? Well, if Christ is doing the work through me, then why isn't the works perfect? And has anyone here been done perfect? What should your answer be? No. Let me, I can give you, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll just give you three scriptures, right? So you've got law and gospel on your page. Right down below your definitions, just right in the middle, just write down these three things. You ready? Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And be holy as God is holy. See those three? Now, if you were to add those three up based off your life, what would your score be? You've never loved God that way. You've never loved your neighbor that way. And you've never been as holy as God is holy. So that would mean you were perpetually what? Failing whatever test anyone would give you. That's not good news, is it? The law tells you to do what? Do these three things and you will live. What would the gospel say to those three things? Christ did those three things. Did Christ love the Father with all his heart, mind, body, and soul? Did he love his neighbor as himself? And was he as holy as God is holy? You see, now, now people get nervous, but, 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 but no, 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 no. Because if you say Christ did it, then you're telling me I don't have to do it. And if you're telling me I don't have to do it, then, then no, 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 no. No, I got to go find a new church. I got to have someone tell me I have to do this in order to be saved. Well, the only problem is if you go find someone to tell you you have to do that to be saved, you should be coming back to me asking me how to be saved because you should realize you're not saved. Amen? Okay, maybe. Hopefully. Luther said it this way. Are you ready? The person who is well-versed in the art of dividing the law from the gospel should be placed at the head of all and call them a doctor of holy writ. The person who can properly divide law and gospel, that's the person who should be put ahead of everyone else and go, that's the doctor of scripture. That's the one you listen to. You may be able to, you may be able to understand scripture. You may be able to expound it. You may be able to exegete it. You may know the doctrine of the Trinity. You may know the doctrine of the hypostatic union. But if you don't understand the distinction between law and gospel, Luther was like, you shouldn't even be preaching or teaching. 
Because he thought this was the second most important doctrine. The first most important doctrine, according to Luther, would have been what? Justification. And guess what he would have said number two is? The proper distinction between law and gospel. So we, so I hope, so everyone understands. Two concepts, law and gospel, right? Okay, what does the law say? Do this and live. And what does the gospel say? Christ did this so you can live. Now, you think that's simple, yes? But is it that simple? Well, if Luther thought it was so complicated that the person who could figure it out should be the one who's the head of the table of all teachers, then clearly it's not that easy, and it's led to all kinds of disagreements. And why has it led to so many disagreements? Because the Bible seems to be in contradicts itself. Now, is it possible that the attempt to, to, to fix the contradiction has became basically what's known as lordship salvation? Is it possible that the way to fix this is not lordship salvation, but a proper understanding of law and gospel? Because you basically, in, a, in the evangelical world, you're, you either are just told, don't worry about the difference, or you're told that the lordship salvation is the way to fix it. Maybe the way to fix it is law and gospel. So what we're going to do is I'm going to present to you, let me count how many here. Hopefully you're ready to write these down because the rest of Sunday school is going to be writing all of these down. Let me see how many I've got here. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five theses. How Luther, Luther loved, you know, 95 theses. Well, here are the 25 theses on how to make a proper distinction between law and gospel. Now, it's 1049. There's no way I'm going to get through all 25 right now, but we're going to be using the second hour to continue this. But I want you to write these down, and I want you to meditate them uh, on them. But I, but I could have just, like, posted this somewhere so that you could just see them, but I want you to write them down so that they'll stick with you, okay? So I know this is not the funnest part of preaching, just giving you something to write down, but it's an important part of teaching so that it sticks with you, right? If I just gave you a list of them, what's a good chance would happen with that list? Probably be thrown away before you got home or end up in the floorboard of your car, right? Or folded up somewhere in a Bible to be found 15 years from now going, who is the idiot who gave me this, right? Okay, so I'm going to make you write it down so when you find it in 15 years, you can be, who's the idiot who wrote this down? And it will be you. Okay, so see, does that work better? All right, I hope so. All right, here we go. You ready? 25 theses on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Number one. Now, some of these are long, so we're not going to get far, but I'm just going to, re- I'm going to read it first and then I'll go back and break it down. Everybody ready? Number one, thesis number one, the doctrinal contents of the entire Holy Scriptures, both of the Old and the New Testament, are made up of two doctrines differing fundamentally from each other, law and gospel. All right, now let's break it down. The doctrinal contents of the entire Bible, or you can just put the entire of, of uh, the entire Holy Scriptures, whatever works for you. The doctrinal contents of the entire Bible. Let's just do it that way; it makes it easier. 
the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible. We can add both of the Old and New Testament, but that would be redundant because we just said the doctrinal contents of what? The entire Bible. All right, so we don't need to add of the Holy Scriptures. So the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible are made up of two doctrines differing fundamentally from each other. So the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible are made up of how many doctrines? Two doctrines. And what do they do? Differing fundamentally from each other. And what are these two? Law and gospel. So guess what? The person who can read their Bible from Genesis to Revelation and be able to put an L or a G and know which one is law and which one is gospel and understand those differences, that's the person who should be the head of the table when it comes to be teaching doctrine and theology. Now, this is where Lutheran churches excel. Because guess what young people have to be able to do before they go through, before they are confirmed? They have to be able to listen to a sermon and hear which part is law and which part is gospel. Now, of course, you know, some of the kids just kind of go through it. And you know how it works. But in theory, that sounds great, right? But that means this is not just for the adults. The young people should be able to go through the Bible and go, Mom, that's law, that's gospel. And here's how they fit together. This is not a concept for the seminary professor. This is the concept for everyone in this room and everyone listening online. You should be able to distinguish what is law and what is gospel. And once you just, yeah, and look, just noting the difference is just the beginning. Now you've got to know what to do with the difference, right? How does the difference work together? Because the difference will look like a contradiction. So that means in one book, you may feel like there's a hundred contradictions. You're like, wait, that's law. Wait, that's gospel. Wait, that's law. Wait, that's gospel. How do they fit together? The first thesis just wants you to understand what? That the entire Bible is filled with these two doctrines. And they're fundamentally different from each other. And what are they called? Well, what do we have a tendency to do? Old Testament. New Testament. That is a bad understanding. So far, so good? We're moving fast, aren't we? We're up to number two, thesis number two. All right. Now, some of these I'm going to reword, right? But I'll read them the way they're written, and then we'll, we'll, we'll modify them, okay? So that at least you understand. Only he is an orthodox teacher... Not only, or only he is an orthodox teacher who not only presents all the articles of the faith in accordance with the scripture, but also rightly distinguishes from each other the law and the gospel. So let's make it simple. The only person who's an orthodox teacher is the one 
who rightly distinguishes law and gospel. The only person who's an orthodox teacher is the one who can properly distinguish between law and gospel. Let's just make it simple. Only he, the only person who's an orthodox teacher is the one who can properly distinguish between law and gospel. Everybody got that? How did y'all write it down? I give you like different ways of saying it. I hear who who wrote it the best. What do we have? How did you write it down, Sarah? There we go. Now it's dogma. You have to write it that way. Okay. All right. Say it again so everybody can hear. The only orthodox teacher is the one who rightly distinguishes between law and law. Right. That's the only orthodox teacher. The only orthodox teacher. Now, guess what? Whenever you looked for a church, probably what did you not look for? Did you, look, did you listen to God? I wonder if they properly draw a distinction between law and gospel. No, you did not. He did not. Because we haven't been taught this. Now, I, I came in contact with this as a Lutheran, did not completely understand it, right? Especially because my understanding of Christianity at the time was not law and gospel. My understanding of Christianity at that time was lordship salvation. So to me, law and gospel looked like a cop-out to get out of the lordship salvation situation. But I, I mean, I became saved at the time that lordship salvation was exploding. So I thought that that was the only way Christianity worked. I didn't understand any better. Then my, when I enrolled at a Catholic university to understand Catholic theology so that I could preach Catholic theology with knowledge instead of ignorance, because I got tired of hearing Protestants say bad things about Catholicism, that wasn't correct. Then I started discovering, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This lordship thing is basically Catholicism. Even they were like, that's Catholicism. How do you guys not see it? And I'm like, oh boy, right? So then I'm like, I don't understand what to do. So I knew that there were some problems with that. But then I'm like, okay, but we've got to reconcile the contradictions, right? We've got to reconcile what? Wait, you're saved by grace. No, you're saved by works. No, how does this, how does this fit together? And I listen to all the possible ways of trying to fit, make it work. And guess what happens with all the ways of trying to make it work? They fall apart. So then I went back and kind of reverted back to the law and gospel distinction. And I'm like, how do I bring the law and gospel distinction back into this problem and make it work? Well, that's what we're going to try to unfold is how it works. So that would mean that in my entire life, I have not been an orthodox teacher according to this thesis. Because I've not properly understood it. Now you say, well, that's, that's bad. Yes, it is bad. But the point is, in teaching and in learning as a Christian, we never start off where we want to be, but we always have to be moving, trying to grow and grow and grow. And you can't grow unless you're willing to understand what you messed up in the first place. So I'm going to, I feel that I messed this up horribly. I was exposed to it, but I didn't, I didn't understand it at the time. Look, I wish, this is one thing, I wish Lutherans didn't baptize babies. Because if they didn't, I would have stayed right there. And then I would have gotten a better understanding of law and gospel. Now, sadly, so much of Lutheranism has disintegrated into liberal nonsense that now they don't even teach law and gospel unless you find a very conservative, conservative one. 
But um, if it wasn't for the baptism of babies, I could have stayed away from a lot of the nonsense that I found in the evangelical fundamentalist world where they obliterated the distinction between law and gospel. They blew They didn't even care about the distinction between law and gospel, which I think ultimately destroys what? When law and gospel gets obliterated, which gets destroyed? Gospel. Law never gets destroyed. Because guess what our natural indication is? Our inclination is. Do this. I must do this. I, what sounds bizarre to us is that Christ did it. For, we can't accept that. that. There's something inside of us that doesn't like that. We rebel against it. All right. So far, so good. So what was number one? Doctrinal contents of the entire Bible? Two doctrines. Differing fundamentally from each other, law and gospel. Number two, the only orthodox teacher is the one who can do what? Properly distinguish between law and gospel. Properly distinguish between law and gospel. All right, everybody good? Because when we're done, we're going to have, I'm going to, not today, but when, when we get later in the series, I'm, get, I'm even giving the young people a test. They're gonna, I'm going to see who can draw the proper distinction between law and gospel. All right, number three. This, this, we're going to have to stop here. Yeah, and the kids are like, can we skip church that day? I'm feeling sick already. Okay. But we don't know when it's going to be. Just go ahead and write it down. I'm feeling sick. Okay. All right. Here we go. This is number three. I'll just read it the way it is, and then we'll try to modify it. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. It is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. Now, you know we're going to leave that last part off because I can't stand that. Because if the Holy Spirit's the one teaching this, then all Christians should, should already know how to do it. So you know we're going to throw that out, right? That's just ridiculous, okay? Because Christians always claim that. That the Holy Spirit teaches that. Well, then everyone should be on the same page. Why has there ever been a disagreement? So, you know, I'll throw that out. So what would we say? Distinguishing, rightly distinguishing law and gospel is the most difficult and highest art of, of Christians in general. And we won't even have to put in the theologians in particular, because what do I believe every Christian should be? A theologian. Because theology is simply study and knowledge of God. And what should every Christian be studying? God. And what should everyone be growing in knowledge about? God. Okay, all right, so... So rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general. Now, what does that tell you? What, do we, what can we learn from that? It's not easy. It's going to be difficult. It doesn't come naturally. Right? To learn an art whether it's art as in painting, art as in music, art as in dance, or in what we would refer to as a martial art, all the years I've been in martial arts, to learn martial arts, it's not easy. It's ours. How to throw the elbow, how to block, how to throw a kick, right? All of those things require what? Time. And what's another word? Well, and patience is good. In martial arts, we like the word discipline, Discipline. Discipline. It's not easy. And, is there, and, and, and so 
I just want you to understand, this is something you should, it, it's, a, you, it's the highest thing you can learn as a Christian is how to do this. All right, now, we're going to have to stop there before everyone starts walking in for the next hour. I hear them out there. I'm going to say, hey, we're trying to distinguish law and gospel. Be quiet. Okay, no, all right. Just, just joking, just joking. All right, anybody have any questions? Oh, yes, I can read the last one one more time. And our, kind of our modified way. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general. And feel free to modify it a little more if you need to. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general. Any questions? All right. How much experience does everyone have with this concept? Okay. Someone said none. I like the honesty. All right. We've talked about it in this church. Okay. And I've mentioned it. But now the reason I'm coming back to it so strongly is because um, it's, it's really time to, to show you how this concept fits with my struggle with Lordship Salvation. Lordship Salvation is really an attempt to reconcile the Bible's apparent contradiction. And we, I, I think I can clearly point out the failures in it. It just doesn't make, it just falls apart, right? I gave you three scriptures, right? Love God. Love others and be holy. No one, everyone here has to admit that they fall short of that. Well, if that's the standard to know you're saved, not only would that mean then you're saved by your works, it would demonstrate that you're not saved if you're even halfway honest. So then how do we reconcile that? Law and gospel. Because what would law say? Let's just do this real quick. Those three things. Love God, love others, be holy. What does the law say? Do this and you will... Do this. Who said that? Look at that. That's what I wanted to hear. Awesome. He said, he said, be saved. Do this and be saved. That's awesome, 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 awesome. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. All right. So yeah, the law says do this and you'll be saved. The gospel says Christ did this. That's why you're saved. Okay. That's the only way you're saved. Now, now, but people, something rises up in people when they hear that. And they get, they don't want that because it makes it feel like, well, then I don't have to do it. Well, in one way, you don't because you can't. Now, that should make me grateful, right? Because isn't it good to know that in one way, when you go to bed tonight, Right? On one level, you're going to say, I didn't love you the way I should. I didn't love others, and I definitely wasn't as holy as I should be. But on the other way, you can go to bed going, thank you, because I loved God the way I was supposed to today. I loved others the way I was supposed to, and I was holy as I was supposed to. Not because of what I did, but because of what Christ has done for me. You say, but, but, but immediately someone's gone, but, 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 but you're saying we don't have to do it. You're missing the point. It's already been done. When you became saved, it was imputed to you. You see how this fits with our series on Romans 10? Or on the book of Romans? See, this is the proper, because we were going to go back to Romans 10. This is the perfect time to place this here as its own standalone series so that we can really understand this. 
Because in Romans 10, we just spent a lot of time talking about that we're saved by what? Grace, faith, not by works. We're declared righteous by what? Faith. We are declared righteous by faith. If I'm declared righteous by faith, how can you, how can someone come run to Emma and go, Emma, 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 no, 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 you're not righteous. Look, you failed the test, Emma. Emma should be like, no, I'm perfectly righteous by, you're trying to judge my righteousness by works. And if you need to do that, see Jesus, he took care of it all. Now, they would say you're a liberal and you probably shouldn't even be saved and you should go. You, but. And, now, you know, what I would say, well, then you need to stop going to evangelical churches and go to a Catholic church. Put your money where your mouth is. If you want Catholicism, go to a Catholic church. I wonder why they never do that. Why do you think they never go back to the Catholic church? Because they can't run around and interpret the Bible the way they want to. <laughs> and no good Protestant wants to give up that power, right? They they want to be they want to be rebellious, but but they want the doctrine of Catholicism without being Catholic because Catholicism would say, "Hey, you can't run around and interpret the Bible. You got to interpret the way they interpret it." And no no good Protestant would ever want that. Does that make sense? All right, we'll stop right there. Let's let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. This, this distinction may be the most important distinction we've ever looked at, and I pray that we will at least take it seriously. I don't know if this is going to have a positive impact on anyone listening online or anyone listening in this room, but I'm going to do everything in my power, Lord, to try to show the importance of this, and I hope that everyone will give it at least a good amount of time of meditating and discussing it so that it can possibly have great benefit for our Christian lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,